Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 1 to 16, the false message and doom of the false prophets. So let's start with our memory verse. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, and we read this together. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, why is that such an awesome promise? Because without God's spirit we can't do it, right? Now, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and let me just pray that you give us understanding and Lord, that I only speak what is true in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we talked about the idea, a phrase that is thrown around, God loves a sinner but hates the sin. Well, we went through the scriptures last week and we discovered that God both loves and is angry with the sinner. But once we come to salvation, is God still angry with us? No. The anger has been put onto Jesus. So, how did we get there? Well, last week we saw that God prolonged the judgment against Judah, Ezekiel 12, 21-28. And the reason why? Well, there's only one reason that God prolongs judgment, and that is he wants to give them more time to repent. He loves them greatly and does not want to punish them. From a human perspective, it's like a dilemma, a conundrum. It's not in God's mind, of course, everything's perfect, but from our point of view, it seems like there's this tension. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? house of Israel. So, turn, turn from your evil ways. What word summarizes that? Repent. Yeah, God is calling them to repent. So, if he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, what does bring him pleasure? People who repent. God actually loves it when we come to him. It brings him great pleasure. So, That verse in Ezekiel demonstrates this perfect balance within God's nature between his love and his wrath. They coexist or dwell together in perfect harmony. God is as wrathful towards sin and the sinner as he is loving. A just, righteous, perfect, fair and holy God must judge sin and by connection the sinful man who also commits the sin. However, at the same time, God in eternity past, made the decision to love the people he created. That's just his nature. It's his decision. And therefore God's heart is crushed or broken when the people he loves choose to reject him. And we read that and studied that in Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. He does not like to judge us. He does not like to condemn us because he loves us and he wants us to be with him. So we can summarize God's love for the people he created as limitless and unconditional, and I've got some scriptures there for you to read, and God's wrath, we can define that as his righteous indignation and anger towards and his hatred and revulsion or repulsion of sin. And it's directed towards sinful man because we, as sinners, are born with a sinful nature. We can't help that. So, what are we born like? What does the flesh look like? What does the sinful nature look like? Well, it's openly hostile to God. It's an enmity with God. That means an enemy of God. And it is repulsive to God. And so you can read Psalm 5, 4 to 6 and Romans 8, 7 to 8 as a couple of examples of the scriptures that describe our sinful nature. There's many more. So, that's why we can't stand in God's presence as we are. And I've got a heap of references there that you can look up. I'm just going to read three. The first one is Isaiah 33, 14. 
It says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? God is a holy God, right? Hebrews 10, 30, 31, from the Amplified Bible. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, retribution and the meeting out of full justice rest with me. I will repay, I will exact the compensation, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge and determine and solve and settle the cause and the cases of his people. It is a fearful, formidable and terrible thing to incur the divine penalties and be cast into the hands of the living God. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, it says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, that describes God's holiness and his hatred towards sin and his justness, his fairness, and the fact that he must punish sin. But the beautiful thing is that in Christ, God's love and righteousness meet, and the result is salvation for those who choose to respond to God's invitation with repentance and faith. And one of my favorite verses is Psalm 85, verses 10 and 11. It says, Mercy, which in the Old Testament refers to God's loving kindness, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. So, you can't really see how God's justice and his mercy would meet. What can God do? But he's done something. In Christ, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. So, it's good for us to remember our hopeless situation. And how God becoming the payment for our sin made it possible for us to come back into relationship with him once again. So again, God is both angry with us and loves us at the same time as unbelievers, okay? Now as believers, we're not in that situation. We experience his acceptance and we are in the beloved, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. But these verses talk about what we were and now what we are. Okay, So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 from the NLT. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So once you were dead, right? You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, his wrath, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy because he loved us so much. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. We are accepted in the Beloved. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And the same passage from the Amplified Bible Ephesians 2, 1-7 And you he made alive when you were dead, slain by your trespasses and sins, in which at one time you walked habitually. You were following the course and fashion of this world. You were under the sway of the tendency of this present age, following the prince of the power of the air. You were obedient to and under the control of the demon spirit that still constantly works in the sons of disobedience, the careless, the rebellious, and the unbelieving who go against the purposes of God. Among these, we, as well as you, once lived and conducted ourselves in the passions of our flesh, our behavior governed by our corrupt and sensual nature, obeying the impulses of the flesh 
and the thoughts of the mind, our cravings dictated by our senses and dark imaginings, we were then by nature children of God's wrath and heirs of his indignation like the rest of mankind. So, those first three verses, they paint a really dark picture of the condition of man's heart outside of Christ. So, we are under condemnation. What does it say in John chapter 3? I think it's verse 18. If you have not believed, then you are already condemned. We'll continue in verse 4. I love the way the Amplified brings this out. But God, so rich is he in his mercy, because of and in order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love with which he loved us. So, great wrath, but also great love. Isn't that awesome? I'll read that bit again, verse 4. But God, so rich is he in his mercy, because of and in order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, slain by our own shortcomings and trespasses, he made us alive together in fellowship and in union with Christ. He gave us the very life of Christ himself, the same new life with which he quickened him. For it is by grace, his favor and mercy, which you did not deserve, that you are saved, delivered from judgment, and made partakers of Christ's salvation. And he raised us up together with him and made us sit down together, giving us joint seating with him in the heavenly sphere by virtue of our being in Christ Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. He did this that he might clearly demonstrate through the ages to come the immeasurable, limitless, surpassing riches of his free grace, his unmerited favor in his kindness and goodness of heart towards us in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful way to describe our salvation. What motivated God to die on the cross? His great and wonderful and intense love with which he loved us. But it had to be a great love because we were great sinners. So, continue on this theme of our moral bankruptcy and what we were saved from and who we were before we were saved. I want to just look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 and understand why it's important that we understand our wretchedness and absolute moral bankruptcy. So, Romans 5, 6 to 8. When will we get in weakness, powerless to help ourselves, at the fitting time Christ died for, in behalf of, the ungodly? Now, it is an extraordinary thing for one to give his life, even for an upright man, though perhaps for a noble and lovable and generous benefactor, someone might even dare to die. But God shows and clearly proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for us. So, were we worthy of being saved? Did we deserve to be saved? No, not at all, right? So, what I'm trying to explain here is that through these scriptures, the strength or measure of God's love toward us is in direct proportion to the hatred, wrath, anger, or righteous indignation towards the sin that it had to overcome. Now, I want to just expose one of the lies that is fairly common in the church today, and it's the modern prosperity gospel. Unfortunately, it goes to great lengths to avoid offending people. And basically, its message is the opposite of what we just read concerning our sinful condition, the vileness of our sinful nature. We just read that we are unworthy or undeserving of salvation. In contrast, the prosperity gospel teaches that people are worthy of being saved. So, here's an excerpt from one of these false teachers as he shares the false gospel, the false prosperity gospel. So I'm just going to read out a little bit of what he said in one of his YouTube things. You know what God says? You're so worthy, I died for you. You're so lovable. I love you. You are his prize that was worth dying for. So don't be so hard on yourself and don't take yourself so seriously. 
you are worthy to be that prize. Can you see a slight contradiction there between what the Bible says and this false gospel? David Guzik has a great comment on this twisted thinking in his commentary on Jude. But we should understand what it means when the Bible says that God loves the ungodly. Romans 5.6 The significance of the idea that God loves us all has been twisted considerably. Consider the sinner who defends his sinful practice by saying, God loves me just the way I am. Because that's where this leads, right? This whole thinking, telling people they're worthy, yeah? His implication is that God loves me. I must be pretty good. Actually, the fact that God loves him is a reflection on God's goodness, not his own. So it's a reflection on God's goodness, not his own. The perspective isn't, I'm so great that even God loves me, but God is so great that he loves even me. And going back to Romans 5, 7-8, that's basically telling us that it doesn't take much love to save a good person. It wouldn't take you much, it wouldn't take much to convince you to give your life for someone who is a really nice person. A really loving, caring, genuine person. It doesn't take much to do something for that kind of person. And that's the modern prosperity gospel, which implies that God is basically obliged to save us because of our inherent goodness. So, why is this false you-are-worthy gospel, the prosperity gospel, so dangerous? Well, there's two reasons, two main reasons in my mind. There's probably other ones too. The first one is, no repentance leads to false conversions. So, let me explain this. The you-are-worthy gospel blinds people to the absolute depravity of their sinful nature, and therefore they don't understand that they need to repent of their sin. The God loves me just as I am thinking. Therefore, if they make a profession of faith based on this false understanding of the gospel, they will not be truly saved because they never repented of their sin. They didn't know they had to because they were never made to understand that they were reprehensible sinners in God's sight. And you can see Matthew seven twenty one to 23 and Mark one fifteen. Mark one fifteen is where Jesus says you must repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew seven twenty one to 23 is when you have these people who have made this confession, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the second reason that it's important that we understand our moral bankruptcy, our utter depravity as a sinner, our sinful nature that we're born with, is that he who is forgiven little loves little. So our understanding of how much God loves us is directly proportional to our understanding of how sinful we understand we are. So I'm not sure if you remember off the top of your head, but Jesus had this amazing conversation with Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7, 36-50. Remember Simon the Pharisee did not wash Jesus' feet. He didn't anoint him with oil. He didn't show any kind of courtesy or gratitude to Jesus. The sinner woman, okay, because that's how Simon the Pharisee described this woman. If this man were a prophet, he would know what this woman was like. This sinner woman, I'm going to call her, had a good understanding of just how greatly her sin offended God. She therefore, by her actions, demonstrated a deep understanding and appreciation of God's love and acceptance of her. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, and then kissed Jesus' feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. That is a beautiful display of gratitude and love. Why? All because she had an accurate understanding of her depravity and moral bankruptcy. She knew what she was saved from, and she knew what she was like when God saved her. And what did Jesus say to Simon? He who is forgiven little loves little. Who's that referring to? Simon the Pharisee. The Pharisee thought he was a really good person. Yeah, He didn't think that he needed much forgiving. And therefore, he had no gratitude or thankfulness towards Jesus. So the application for us. It's only when we come to understand just how abhorrent, distasteful, abominable, despicable, repellent, 
repungent, repulsive, revolting, disgusting, distasteful, horrid, horrible, horrifying, awful, heinous, reprehensible, obnoxious, odious, nauseating, offensive, and contemptible, our sinful nature is to God, that we can really begin to understand how great His love is toward us. Why God would choose to bear with us and make us the recipients of His love by giving us the opportunity to repent and believe. So, when sharing the gospel, the best way to help people understand how much they love by God is to first show them how vile their sinful nature is to God because of its inherent moral corruption, after depravity, corruptness, pervertedness, degeneracy, immorality, shamelessness, wickedness, baseless, viciousness, and brutality. And the response of the sinner should be, Wow, God loves even me. How is it possible that someone could love such a sinful wretch like me so much that he would die for me, willingly taking on himself the punishment I fully deserve? It's when we come to the cross like that, when we have a good understanding of the gospel, the whole gospel, which includes our sinfulness, that someone will enter the Christian walk and walk in appreciation of what God has done for them. They will serve God motivated by love, not seeking and expecting God to do stuff for them because they're so worthy, but just constantly being humbled by and coming to a greater and greater understanding of how much God loves them. So now we come to today's passage. Ezekiel 13, 1-16, the false message and doom of the false prophets. One of the reasons I went into what we did last week and did a bit of revision and expansion on that was it fits in well with today because it's the false prophets who are teaching that message. And that's why God is going to deal with them so severely. God condemns the false prophets. So the prosperity gospel is nothing new. The idea that you can get religion or say a prayer and then continue to live like the world and think that God will accept you into heaven is nothing new. This is what's happening in Ezekiel's time. As it was back then, as it is today, the gospel that requires no repentance is an abhorrence to God. And as Jude 13 says, these false teachers only have blackness of darkness reserved for them forever. So we can learn this lesson from the nation of Israel because, as predicted in the New Testament, there are many false prophets around today who are seducing people with flattering words to gain advantage over them. They are central persons who do not have the Spirit. That's a summary of Jude 16-19. to So the setting for today, the true prophets, Ezekiel in Babylon and Jeremiah in Jerusalem, have been telling the people to repent of their sins and turn to God. And their sins included, as we've looked at before, idolatry, adultery, fornication, and gross sexual immorality. You know, the temple prostitutes and all that kind of stuff. Worship of false gods, child sacrifice, violence, injustice, corruption, rebellion against God, pride, and the list goes on. However, the people didn't like the repentance message and so chose to listen to the false prophets instead. Remember, God always gives us a choice, right? So today we have true Bible teachers who generally you know, do their best to stick to the Word of God And then we have those who stick to and follow the other false gospels, whether it be a works gospel or a prosperity gospel. And people have a choice. Who will they listen to? So the people in Jerusalem and Judah were still worshipping at the temple on the Sabbath, but living according to what Ezekiel says, just like, or even worse than, the Gentile pagan nations all around them. What does it make them? Religious hypocrites. And the false prophets and false teachers and the priests encouraged this by teaching that because they had the temple and were still going through the motions of worship, reading scripture and offering sacrifices to God, that God would keep them safe from the coming Babylonian judgment. But little did they realize that God's presence had already departed from the temple and the wicked, unrepentant people had already been condemned. They had listened to a false message, were trusting in a false hope, and in the end it would cost them their life when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. 
So why is this so important? Why is it worth studying? This account is a physical example of what is happening in the spiritual today. Just like the Babylonians came, the judgment came and destroyed people who would not repent. It's going to happen to those who refuse to repent today. People, like back then, with itchy ears, are heaping up teachers for themselves according to their own desires. Again, it's their own choice. Because they have willingly turned their ears away from the truth and sound doctrinal teaching. And that's a summary of 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. So, in reality, they are gambling with their eternal future. They choose to trust in a false gospel which gives them a false hope, but despite their enthusiasm and feelings of assurance and security, they remain condemned and will burn forever in the lake of fire nonetheless. Now, there's also people who are truly saved, yeah? Who are caught in these movements, these places where they don't teach the true gospel, and what happens is it just stunts their growth. They still go to heaven, they're still saved, but they don't understand God's love for them. They don't respond to God's promises, and they just stay as babies, basically. And they never grow. And so they don't lose their salvation, but they do lose their reward. So let's read Ezekiel 13, 1-16, and we'll see what God thinks and says about these prophets, these false prophets. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit, and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord. But the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision, and have you not spoken false divination? You say, the Lord says, but I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision fertility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untempered mortar and say to those who plaster it with untempered water that it will fall. There will be flooding rain, and you, a great hailstone, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely, when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, Where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger, and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall, and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus I will accomplish my wrath on the wall, and on those who have plastered it with untempered mortar. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it. That is, and this is the explanation of this parable of the wall, that is, the prophets of Israel who prophesy concerning Jerusalem, who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord God. Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. And in verses 1 and 2, God commands Ezekiel to speak against the false prophets. So it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, Hear the word of the Lord. So, say to them, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy. God is, I think, kind of mocking the false prophets here. There were numerous Jewish prophets, false prophets, both in Judah and in Babylon. And their singular, optimistic, and very positive message was that, do you remember? 
God will deliver Jerusalem and Judah from the Babylonians, and that those already in exile will return home soon. And you can read all that in Jeremiah chapter 28. In verse 2 it also says, who prophesy out of their own heart. So, a quote here from David Guzik, the source of their false prophecy wasn't necessarily directly demonic, there was simply a large element of their own heart in what they said, their own desires, their own hopes, their own wisdom, their own needs for acceptance prompted their words. Another quote, help us understand this phrase, who prophesy out of their own heart. They were misled by their own desires, which is a scriptural method of asserting they were not inspired of God. The wish was farther to the thought, and they spoke accordingly. And John Corson says, There were many prophets on the scene saying, Thus says the Lord, when in reality they were simply giving their own opinions. This can be a terrible tendency even today. Wanting to be liked or to comfort others, we can find ourselves saying hopeful words to people that are not truly from the Lord. So we need to be careful we don't fall into this trap of saying something is from the Lord or believing things that people say are from the Lord when you don't know if they're actually from the Lord. What's the solution? Verse 2 says, Hear the word of the Lord. That's God's instruction to the false prophets, right? The solution to the problem for the false prophets is they need to start listening to God and reading his word instead of following their heart, their wicked and evil heart. They need to start paying close attention to the word of God. Now, the next section, verses 3 to 7, is the false and foolish prophets. God calls them foolish. So let's read, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision, and have you not spoken false divination? You say, the Lord says, but I have not spoken. So, In verse 3 it says, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit. So, why are they foolish? Well, what are they doing? They're making what they say more important than what God says. They regard what they think or feel as being more important as being what God says in his word. A quote from Vorta and Hoppy. These prophets, whether in good faith but self-deluded or in bad faith and deliberately deceiving, it doesn't matter, have professed to speak the mind of the Lord when in reality no spirit other than their own moved them. I like that quote because it brings out the two different motivations. They can be sincere doing this in good faith, thinking that they're actually speaking for God, self-deluded, or they can know that they're lying to you and deceiving you, but the effect is still the same. In verse 3, who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. So, similar to what the Bible says in Jude 19, these false prophets don't hear from God because, unlike Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they didn't have God's Holy Spirit upon them. God wasn't speaking to them. They had seen nothing from God. It was their message, not God's message. In verse 4, it says, Your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. Now, The word deserts there means ruins, or can mean ruins. So imagine this picture where you have a deserted village or town, and the foxes are digging burrows under the walls. What's going to happen to the walls? They're going to collapse, right? So basically, they're undermining the truth. Your prophets are like foxes in the ruins. The walls and buildings are going to fall down. And the idea here is that they cause havoc and destruction. Now, another analogy for the foxes. Like foxes are wolves, the false prophets are crafty, cruel, and destructive. What does Jesus say about the wolves? They get in there with the sheep and destroy them, yeah? It's their nature. Jesus warned 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Matthew seven fifteen to 16 And verse 5, You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. So this speaks of a lack of courage. And there's a quote here from Alexander which explains it well. The prophets had shown no courage in battle. In time of war, a brave soldier would rush to any break in the defensive perimeter and defend it until the position could be secured. These prophets, however, had not gone up into the breaches in the moral and spiritual walls of the nation. So where they needed to hear the truth, they were too gutless to tell the truth. So again, they lacked courage and they lacked boldness to speak God's truth. And especially when it convicts people of their sins and is therefore not well received by the masses. As someone said, I listened to another sermon, the reason they don't tell the truth is because they want big churches. They want to be popular and rich. However, if they had been courageous and had spoken the truth, then many people would have repented and would therefore have been safe or able to stand when the day of judgment or the day of the Lord came. Now, just want to comment quickly on what the day of the Lord is, right? Because this can be a bit confusing as to what it actually means. In this context, in this passage, it's referring to the day of the Lord as a day of judgment by the hand of the Babylonians. So the Babylonians are going to come down from the point of time Ezekiel's talking about, five years ahead. But in most other places in the Bible, the day of the Lord refers to the seven-year tribulation that is soon to come upon this earth, otherwise known as Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years allocated to Israel. And it's at the end of this seven years when Jesus returns with his bride, the church. And it's called the day of the Lord because that seven years is a period of judgment against this world. God judges the world. And verses 6 and 7, They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. A quote from David Guzik, This is a strong condemnation of the self-appointed prophets. To claim calling when there is none is a significant sin. They claimed to speak in the name of the Lord, but it was an empty claim. So they have envisioned futility and false divination. And it says after that, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Well, maybe if I get it right, maybe if I get really good at trying to predict what's going to happen, it might happen and people might think I'm actually talking with God's authority. So an application here for us, to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. So, context, the rebellious Jews were wiped out. They could not stand before the Babylonian judgment because they had not repented of their sin and had not come back into relationship with God. So, spiritually, anyone who does not have right standing with God, they have not been justified, they have not received forgiveness, will not stand but will instead be condemned at the great white throne judgment where they will be cast into the lake of fire. And you can read that in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Now in the scriptures, there's this question, which is asked several times. Who is able to stand? And Revelation 6, 17, I'll read out as one example. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? There's other references in your notes there. However, the answer is simple. If I have repented of my sins and believed in Christ's sacrifice in my place to save me from my sin, then I will be able to stand in the day of judgment. I will be able to stand because I have received right standing with God because I have been justified or made righteous by God. Again, the scriptures there for you to look up for that in the notes. In fact, my standing before God is even better than not guilty. Why? Well, I have received Christ's righteousness. His perfection has been imputed or transferred to me. He took my sin and gave me his righteousness. It's as though I had lived a perfect life. So this is what gives me confidence to stand before God when I meet him. 
So who was able to stand? What's the answer? Those who repent and believe the gospel. What God has done for them. His sacrificial substitutionary offering in our place. Now, verses 8 and 9. The nonsense and lies spoken by the false prophets. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. So, how does God describe the message of the false prophets? And nonsense and lies. How would you like to go down as, you know, when you die? How would you describe that person? Nonsense and lies. You know? However, the people with the itchy ears, the people who have rejected God's truth, to them, these words would have sounded like the words of God. They would have been hanging on to every word, loving it, believing every word, and living accordingly. Because, you know, it's nice when you get your itch scratched, isn't it? That's what's happening here. They get the itch scratched, and it feels good. They don't want to change. They don't want to go anywhere else. Verse 8, Therefore I am indeed against you. In contrast here, God promised to protect Ezekiel and Jeremiah and to be for them, right? Jeremiah chapter 1, 18 and 19 and other scriptures. In contrast, God is against the false prophets. Okay? So instead of being for them, he is against them. If you read those passages, God gives specific promises to his true prophets that he would protect them from the opposition they would encounter from the people. In verse 9 it says, They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. And here's a quote from David Guzik, One aspect of God's judgment upon these false prophets was for the Lord to regard them as not among his covenant people. That's really important. Not among his covenant people. Put your Jewish shoes on, and to not be one of his covenant people that's like anathema, you know, that's being like excommunicated. So they had no share in Israel's assembly, in Israel's house, or in Israel's land. Another way practically this works out is Feinberg explains when it was affirmed that they would not come into the council of God's people, the sense is that they would lose the place of authority and respect they held among the people by virtue of their alleged calling. So basically, they say, yeah, I'm a prophet, and people go, wow, you're a prophet. What's God got to say? And so you say some stuff that you think they need to hear. But eventually, when they're found to be false, all that respect is gone, all that standing is gone. And verse 9, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So, when all this comes to pass in about five years' time, when the Babylonians conquer Judah and Jerusalem, and the false prophets are shown to be false because their message has shown to be false, you know, what do they say? God's going to defeat the Babylonians. What happened? The exact opposite, yeah? The people would know that the true prophets were the true prophets. What they said happened, the false prophets, was lies and nonsense. But, sadly, those who trusted the false message were killed in the invasion. It was too late for them. So those around, yeah, yeah, fine, they could see that, yep, God was right, I can see that they're the true prophets. But for a lot of those people who trusted in the false prophets, it was too late. Now here's this picture, this parable of the weak wall and the storm. And it's a picture of false hope and false confidence. So it says, because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace. So they seduce my people, saying, peace. So what are they offering? Peace with God, right? Everything's going to be all right. You'll be okay. So apply it to the spiritual. You'll have peace with God. 
but there is no peace. And one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untempered water. Say to those who plaster it, this is a false prophets, who plaster it with untempered water, or just normal plaster, that it will fall. There will be flooding rain, and you, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely when this wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, where is the water with which you plastered it? Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury. There shall be a flooding rain in my anger, and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered water, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall, and you will be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus I will accomplish my wrath on the wall, and on those who have plastered it with untempered water. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it, that is, the false prophets of Israel, who prophesy concerning Jerusalem, and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord. So this parable is quite revealing. They have seduced my people. It's a nice-sounding message, yeah? It's a nice-sounding message. Is attractive, full of hope, inspiration. It's optimistic. It's confident. It inspires people to have confidence. God will give us victory over the Babylonians, they kept saying. But, however, their message of false peace with God seduced the people to continue to rebel against God instead of repenting of their sins and trusting in God. If they think that they can live life the way they were, you know, doing all their you know, temple prostitutes and all those, you know, the child sacrifice and and all those worldly evil ways of living and think that God is going to protect them, that is a false peace. You can't expect God to save you just because you start going to church or something like that. You need to repent of your sins. It needs to be a change. You need to trust in God. Now, verse 10, it says, My people... It's used seven times, and this is sad because even in the modern church, some of these people were actual believers, and they've been deceived. And God doesn't like it when people deceive his children. What did Jesus say about the false prophets and the false teachers? If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it's better for you too. You have a millstone, put around your neck and throw them into the sea. These false prophets are abusing God's people. And today, baby Christians are prime targets, or I should say victims, of the false prophets. Now in verse 10 it says, Peace when there is no peace. And a quote from Wright, They never spoke of repentance, but guaranteed that the blessings of God were just around the corner. Again, so similar to what is happening today in so many places. Again, they never spoke of repentance, but guaranteed that the blessings of God were just around the corner. You know, I hear false prophets who are always seeming to predict great revivals and great victories for the church and rapid church growth and other inspiring but unfortunately usually untrue prophecies. And as Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. And a quote from Morgan, This is the essence of false prophesying. Men, who have no divine message, but pose as though they had, seek to find favour with those to whom they speak, and so agree with them in their desires and policies. Again, this is just scratching the itch, yeah? One builds a wall and they plaster it with untempered water, verse 10. So, if you're building a wall and you don't do it properly, (laughs) we had a wall at our place in Perth and we had to knock it down because it wasn't built properly and it was unsafe. It was an occupational health and safety hazard and we had a couple of friends here come up and they helped us knock that down. It was a wall that was about to collapse at any moment. But, what I could have done instead is gone up there and got some render and rendered that wall, made it look really nice. But guess what's going to happen? It's still going to fall down. 
just because I make it look nice and hide all the cracks and everything, it doesn't mean it's not going to fall down. And this is an illustration of the false prophet's message. It sounds great, but it's just not true. And in the end, it would fail. So in verse 11, it says, Say to those who plaster it with untempered water that it will fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. So the wall in this parable represents the false promises of the false prophets. And the untempered mortar or plaster represent the deception that everything was okay with God. And the hail and the stormy wind represented the coming Babylonian judgment that God had repeatedly warned them about. And so when the Babylonians did come about five years later, what happened? As predicted, they conquered and destroyed Jerusalem. And it was like this wall of false promises, false hope and false assurance that the false prophets had built came tumbling down on top of the people who trusted in it and killed them. So I've got an application here. Be Bereans. If you listen to Chuck Missler, he always quotes this verse, Acts 17.11. The Berean Jews were more fair-minded or noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness and searched, examined closely, investigated or discerned the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Quote here from David Guzik, To use the figures of building and walls, the problem with the false prophets was that the work was not inspected before the great storm or test came. When the storm came and the wall fell, everyone knew the message was false. The key was to do proper inspection of the wall, the false promises, before the storm came. That's David Guzik. So it's a sad reality that many in the modern church don't read their Bibles regularly and are therefore easily deceived because they don't check what they are taught to see if it agrees with Scripture. It's so easy to hook up with a particular Bible teacher, ministry or denomination or teaching, and just blindly follow what they say. And the reality is, it's so easy to do that, and we want to do that, if it sounds good and agrees with what we think, with our preconceived ideas and the way we want to live our life. It takes humility and submission to God to be willing to commit to the hours of study in the Word of God required to really know if what people teach is true or not true. And honestly, it is hard work, but it's worth the effort. And it could save either your eternal soul, or if you're already saved, it could save your reward for being lost. You can finish well instead of being deceived. Verse 13 and 14, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury. So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered water. So God is furious with these self-appointed false prophets. God will judge them and destroy the man-made message. Also in verse 14, it will fall and you shall be consumed. So symbolically, as a picture here, like when a physical wall falls down, it crushes and kills people. So the people, the false prophets and the followers, be killed or hurt when this wall of lies and deception, false hope and optimism eventually collapses. Now, spiritually, it's the second death or the loss of reward, okay? You live a life and then you get to the end of your life and either you're not saved or you've missed the whole point of being a Christian, of living in submission to the Lord and doing what He wants instead of what you want. Verse 15 and 16, Thus I will accomplish my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it with untempered mortar. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it. That is, the prophets of Israel who prophesy concerning Jerusalem. So God explains his parable. God promises to destroy both the lies, the false teaching of the false prophets, and also the false prophets themselves. Wearsby says, the counterfeit prophets gave the people a false hope, so God gave them no hope at all. Verse 16, it says, Who sees visions of peace for her when there is no peace? Now, Ezekiel and Jeremiah's message was that, no, there's not going to be peace. There will be an invasion. But if you submit, you can stay in the land. If you repent of your sins and submit to God and the Babylonians, you can stay in the land. God will spare you. You'll still be under servitude to the Babylonians, but you can stay in the land. You won't be destroyed. 
However, the false prophet's visions of peace left people completely unprepared for the judgment that was on the way. And as a result, the judgment destroyed them. So, to conclude this, I've just grabbed a few verses from Jeremiah chapter 23, because God also speaks against the false prophets in the book of Jeremiah. And this kind of sums up the main points of what we've been talking about today. So Jeremiah 23, verses 14, 16, and 17. But now I see that the prophets of Jerusalem are even worse. They commit adultery and love dishonesty. They encourage those, listen carefully to this, they encourage those who are doing evil so that no one turns away from their sins. No one repents. They are not encouraging repentance. Instead, they're encouraging people to live according to their own desires. For it is because of Jerusalem's prophets that wickedness has filled this land. You see the effect that false teaching has? How it causes wickedness, it causes evil to fill the land. And we could apply that to the church. Because of false teaching, the church has become corrupt. There's no repentance from sin. How many churches teach repentance from sin? I know there's still quite a few that do, but there's a lot that don't as well. And the people there, they're not encouraged to live a life of purity. Verse 16. This is God's warning to his people. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says to his people. Do not listen to these prophets when they prophesy to you, filling you with futile or false hopes. They are making up everything they say. They do not speak for the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise my word. I'm going to come back to that. Don't worry, the Lord says that you will have peace. And to those who stubbornly follow their own desires, they say, no harm will come your way. So, the Lord says you'll have peace. You have peace with God. Just say this prayer. You'll be okay. You can go to heaven. Apply it to the spiritual. And to those who stubbornly follow their own desires, they say, no harm will come your way. In other words, don't worry about repenting. Just keep on living the way you are. You're worthy. God loves you. Just the way you are. It's partially true, partially false, isn't it? Yeah. God does love them just the way they are, but will he accept them the way they are? Again, God does love them just the way they are, but will he accept them the way they are? No. So, I want to focus on this phrase here, those who despise my word. How were they despising my word? Because these false prophets keep saying to those who despise my word. So, Those who don't despise the Word of God, those who treasure the Word of God, who read the Word of God, they won't be deceived. They're going to be protected from the false prophets. But if you don't read the Word of God, it's neglecting it. You're kind of like despising it. So the audience of the false prophets, the ones that they have influence over, are those who despise God's Word. I can choose to be a Berean, a noble person who is submitted to God and therefore treasures and highly esteems his word by searching the scriptures daily in my quest to know and obey God's truth. And that's where it's difficult to be a Christian because the word of God is sharp, like a two-edged sword, cutting between the bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Yeah, it shows us stuff that we don't want to know about ourselves. It shows us stuff that needs to change. And that's one reason I think that people don't read the Bible. Or, in contrast to being a Berean who searches the Scriptures daily, I can choose to despise the Word of God by neglecting it. Because in reality, I'm seeking peace with God without repentance. I'm not willing to change my ways. And it's then only a matter of time before the wall of lies and false hope will collapse on me. It's only if I have right standing with Christ based on the truth of the word of God that I will have genuine hope and assurance for eternity. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this sober warning. But I just want to come back to the fact that your love is in direct proportion to your wrath. And Lord, the more I understand how sinful I am, the more I understand how deserving a punishment I am and how wretched and 
Lord, displeasing and offensive to you than I am. And then, the more I understand just how great your love is for me. Just as your wrath is infinite, so is your love. There's nothing you wouldn't do for me. Lord, thank you for loving me so much that you would die for a wretched sinner like me. Help me to never doubt your love because of this fact that you loved me enough to save me while I was your enemy. I was not worthy. I did not deserve it. Thank you in Jesus' name. So I encourage you to grab those notes and if you didn't get last week's, last week's as well, there's a whole lot of the scriptures in there. I couldn't cover everything in the message. I really encourage you to go through and read those other scriptures because they'll reinforce and you can check and see what I'm saying is right or not.